Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihira Zazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week, we spend the hour with Rhys Jones, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, about his new book, Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Move. Stay with us. In the summer of 2015, a wave of refugees taking perilous sea and land crossings to get into Europe revealed one of the worst humanitarian crises in modern history. The wars in Syria and Iraq and the worsening situation in Afghanistan having forced hundreds of thousands of people to leave their homes and risk their lives to seek sanctuary elsewhere. According to the most recent reports, In 2014, 14 million people were displaced by war, the most in a single year since World War II. In the past decade, 40,000 people died trying to cross international borders. The dramatic increase in the influx of refugees to Europe has produced a rise in anti-refugee sentiments, the enactment of anti-refugee laws, and the construction of walls and fences, exacerbating the plight of millions of people who were forced to flee violence and poverty. Reese Jones is Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Hawaii in Manoa and author of several books, including his most recent, Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Movement. He spoke with Malihe about his new book and the structural violence of the global border regime. Your book, Violent Borders, explores the conflict between movement and settlement. And good example of it is the plight of hundreds of thousands of refugees and migrants who are taking dangerous journeys to find sanctuary in other countries. You also take a long view and multi-layered approach to why nation states have increasingly tried to restrict the movement of refugees and the poor. You focus your analysis on how walls have become sites of violence for millions of people who are fleeing war, persecution, and poverty. You write the hardening of the border through new security practices is the source of violence, not a response to it. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so for me, the act of making a border and then constructing a wall on it and putting the the whole range of border infrastructure that goes along with that. Um, So it's not just the wall, but also the increases in agents that are at the border, the new surveillance technologies that are used there. Um, And over the last 15 to 20 years, there's also a changing mentality of many border security forces that used to think of themselves as primarily doing policing work. Um, Today, the idea of security against terrorism has infused the way that many of these agencies operate so that they treat everyone that they encounter as if they're a potential terrorist, which, of course, very, very few are, if any. But nevertheless, they treat just regular people who are moving to look for work with that mentality of a militarized security force rather than some sort of policing mechanism. So that act of making a border is an inherently violent act. It's always about restricting someone's movement and preventing them from the opportunity to move to another place 
whether it's to look for work, to visit their family, seek better opportunities for their children. So by limiting someone's movement, you're doing violence to that person. And you give several examples in your book on the militarization of border areas, and specifically one that we are very familiar with is U.S.-Mexico border. You write, by 2010, the Border Patrol had more than 20,000 agents. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, employs a total of 59,000 employees, including customs officers, pilots, and maritime interdiction teams. In order to hire such a large number of agents quickly, the Border Patrol removed some previous requirements, such as passing polygraph exam and drew heavily on veterans returning from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, who make up some 30 percent of agents. Yeah, and that's very evident at the U.S.-Mexico border, which I think is often emblematic of changes that are happening at a series of other borders around the world. The data that you just mentioned is quite clear on these changes that have that have happened at the border. At the U.S.-Mexico border, the Border Patrol in 1990 had a budget of about $300 million and had about 3,500 agents. Today, um, their budget is $3.5 billion, and they have over 21,000 agents. So there's been this dramatic dramatic increase in the number of agents there. And simultaneously, particularly after the U.S. embarked on its war on terror, Mm -hmm. the atmosphere in the agency changed from primarily policing for possible migrants looking for work, coming from Mexico or Central America, to treating the border as a space where there's always this potential that a terrorist could be located there. So although the U.S. Border Patrol has located exactly zero terrorists at the U.S.-Mexico border, they nevertheless um, have this mentality that they have to engage with the people that they find there with the possibility that that person Mm. could be a terrorist. And so it means this much more militarized response. It means using military hardware at the border. And it means a lot more violence directed at the people who they encounter in that space. How does building walls and borders connect to violence, in addition to the fact that these people who are really trying to find work or safety, they meet this hyper-militarized space? What else explains the relationship between the two? You say in order to understand the violence of border, we need to have a more nuanced definition of violence. Some argue that uh, structural violence is really baked into the existing socioeconomic system. What is your definition of violence and how does it apply to borders and walls? Yeah, I think that's a a great question, and it's key to understanding the violence that borders do to the bodies of migrants, but also to the environment as well. First of all, there's clearly direct violence at borders. Um, There are border agents killing people who are moving through border spaces at a number of different borders around the world. We see that at the U.S.-Mexico border, where in the past five years, about 33 people have been shot and killed by the Border Patrol. You see that at the Turkey-Syria border, where the Turkish border guards have been accused of killing a number of people trying to flee Syria and cross into Turkey. 
Eritrea as well has a fairly long history now of preventing people from leaving the country. And so border guards there as well have orders to shoot people who are leaving, trying to escape from Eritrea. But probably the border that has the largest amount of direct violence where border agents are killing people, civilians predominantly, in border areas is is actually the India-Bangladesh border, which is one that doesn't come to a lot of people's minds. But in the past 15 years, the Bangladesh government and NGOs that gather data on this have found that over a thousand Bangladeshi citizens have been shot and killed by the Indian border security force. And it's, it's for the similar reason as the U.S.-Mexico border. The Indian border security force is told that they're the front line against terrorism and that it's their duty to prevent terrorist infiltrations in to India. And so if they perceive that movements in border areas are terrorism, they have the authority to shoot and kill people. And and they have been at a fairly staggering rate. So that's the direct violence of the border, um, which accounts for a portion of the deaths that we see at borders and the violence that borders do. You were talking about India-Bangladesh border. You write in your book, the Indian border fence blocked traditional elephant migration. These are, this is also the, the violence perpetuated against the environment. Blocked traditional elephant migration routes along the border with Bangladesh and funneled elephants to more populated areas. From 2002 to 2015, 226 people were killed by elephants and 62 elephants were killed by people, forcing the Indian government to reopen corridors for elephants to pass through the area. But the violence against the humans just continues to this day. Yeah, absolutely. So that is something that's interesting about the way that we think about borders Mm -hmm. often is that um, the the fact that it affects animal migrations often seems to be more important to some people than the effect that it has on human migrations. Mm -hmm. It seems to be okay that hardening borders in the way that we have is forcing people to take these more dangerous routes and that the border security forces are killing people at the border. But if it affects elephants, or if it affects the javelino and the U.S.-Mexico border, that seems to arouse in some ways more public sympathy for these issues. So talk about the indirect violence. Yeah, so indirect violence at the border. So um, in addition to those direct killings by the border security forces, the indirect violence is by hardening the border, by making it harder to cross through border areas. The result has been that many people are funneled to ever more dangerous places Mm -hmm. to cross the border. So If you look back to the 1980s and the 1990s, both at the edges of the European Union, the edges of the U.S., and a number of other places where people are trying to move today, the the India-Bangladesh border as well, it was relatively easy to cross through these spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, You could cross between cities. You could cross in areas that were heavily populated um, so that there was a safe way to cross across the borders. These countries were already starting to do border enforcement during this period. So you had to take some efforts. You might have to engage with a smuggler to help you to do it, but it was fairly easy to do. And during that period of time, the number of deaths at borders were quite Quite low. If you look at the edges of the European Union, during the 1990s, there was on average less than 100 deaths per year of people trying to cross into the EU. The same thing at the U.S.-Mexico border. The, there were relatively few deaths per capita based on the number of people actually crossing the border. 
as these borders became hardened, mm-hmm. um, as fences were built on the borders, as more agents were hired, as these military technologies were deployed to create security in these spaces, the idea with all of that was that it would deter people from trying to come and that they would realize that it's hard to cross these borders and so they would just decide not to make the trip. Mm-hmm. But that has proved to be a, a flawed idea. It didn't work. And so instead, the result has been that people still continue to try to come. Far more people are trying to go to to Europe than were in the the 1990s or even the early 2000s. But the result has been that there are a lot more deaths at borders. So at the edges of the EU, as a lot of people I think are familiar with, there have been a substantial increase in the number of people dying trying to cross through the Mediterranean. It's the same thing at the U.S.-Mexico border. People have been funneled to more dangerous crossing routes. So instead of being able to cross from Tijuana to San Diego, they have to go through the deserts of Arizona, which involves a 50-kilometer trek through arid, dangerous terrain with no water available. And so it results in more deaths. So the conclusion that I come to is that the creation of the border itself and the patrolling of the border is directly causing um, these deaths at the border. That it was, in some ways, the intentional strategy of these border agencies to make it hard to cross the border with the assumption that more people are going to die in the process, um, but then the hope that that would discourage more people from trying to make the trip. You also argue that the violence of borders today is really emblematic of a broader system that seeks to preserve privilege and opportunity for some by restricting access to resources of movement for others. So walls are not just markers of security and sovereignty of nation states. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And it gets to a much longer argument that I make in the book, which is that that there's a long history between people in positions of privilege, whether it's a ruler or today states or wealthy corporations that have a lot of influence in states, um, and the poor. And that that relationship has been based on restrictions on movement for a long period of time. So in the book, I link together an earlier history of things like slavery, serfdom, vagrancy laws, poor laws, which were all different mechanisms for containing the poor, locking them into a particular place through movement restrictions in order to access their labor at a low cost or often no cost um, in the, the in the form of slavery. So what I argue in the book, though, is that the mechanisms for controlling the movement of the poor have changed over the last 100, 200 years, that historically those mechanisms for containing the poor and creating these pools of low-wage labor were often within a particular country, and so that the, the wealthy and the poor that they were containing were in the same place. Mm-hmm. What's happened over the last century is that, that, that there's a similar similar mechanism in place to control the movement of the poor, to protect resources and privileges and wealth that's accumulated in particular places, which which is Europe and the United States predominantly, through the restrictions on movement of the poor. But increasingly, that happens between countries rather than within particular countries. But also it happens within the nation states. And a good example is what is happening in the U.S. They basically are taking the poor and they ghettoize them, or they put them in prison. They are visible and invisible structures 
for separating the poor from the privileged. Absolutely. I'm definitely not suggesting that there is no more inequality within particular countries um, and that these some sorts of mechanisms for containing the poor don't still exist. You can even think of things like gated communities as another example of this, right, of, of a new system for bounding off a space for the privileged and excluding people from access to those spaces in order to protect the wealth and privileges that have accumulated. So there's no doubt about that. That's not the argument that they're not happening there. But instead, I am arguing that the new system that's emerged over the last 100 years of citizenship, of passports, of borders with with immigration regulations on them, and then more recently, the emergence of border patrols and walls and security procedures at borders has created a similar system where the poor are often contained to particular places, which is their country of their birth, which creates a new form of pools of low-wage labor. Um, And so today, corporations can very easily move across borders. They can set up factories wherever it's most advantageous for them. But the poor are contained to these countries, which creates these pools of low-wage labor, um, and they can't demand higher wages because there are so many people in a similar situation to them. A lot of people have in their mind that globalization is fundamentally about opening up borders. Mm -hmm. And it has for a number of things. So consumer goods cross borders as easily as they ever had. If you look at in all of our pockets, we have cell phones that were made all over the place. Pretty much everything we buy in our daily lives was made somewhere quite distant from here. The wealthy also move very easily over borders. And that's part of a long history. The wealthy have always been able to travel quite freely. But Over the last 30 years, there's also been a closing down of borders for the Mm -hmm. poor. So if you look at any of these trade agreements that that have been signed in the past, like NAFTA or the ones that are in discussion now, like the TPP, TPP. none of them include free movement for labor. So it's, it's a crucial part of the current system that corporations and capital can move freely, whereas the poor and regulators as well cannot. But these walls are spreading like wildfire. In 2015, Hungary... Austria, Slovenia, Macedonia, and Bulgaria all started construction or announced plans to build fences. In the last two months, Norway has begun construction of a steel fence at a remote Arctic border post with Russia. France, with British funding, is building a wall near the refugee camp in Calais. Saudi Arabia is planning to build a high-tech wall with two high fences, 300 feet apart, 40 watchtowers, 900 miles of fiber optic cable, underground movement detection. And of course, the most famous of all is the apartheid wall in Palestine. Yeah, there are even some more that, that have happened this year that you didn't didn't even mention, right? So uh, some of the ones that you talked about, Bulgaria and Austria have expanded their walls, and Turkey also built is building yes. a quite large wall on the, the border with Syria, and also Pakistan started a fence on its Afghanistan border as Jordan well. Jordan is building <clears throat> one as well. Jordan as well, yeah. So it's um, it really is a dramatic uptick in the number of walls. In 1989, there were only 15 border walls around the world. Today, they're almost 70. Um, wow. So there's a really substantial increase, three quarters of them built in the last 20 years. I think there are a series of reasons for that. One is that there is an increasing awareness of people who are moving around and the desire to contain those movements. That was in place before. I think there was in the 1980s and 1990s a desire 
desire not to allow the poor to move, and the poor were trying to move during that period as well. Um, But in the 1990s, there was a stigma associated with building a wall on a border. After the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the public narrative, at least in the U.S. and Europe, was that that freedom had won and this exclusionary wall had come down. And so it would be very hard during that period to imagine that these democratic states would then build their own walls, right? It just simply wasn't something that, that they could legitimately do. After the war on terror narrative comes into place, it completely removes the stigma of things like building a wall and of expanding security procedures at borders because it becomes something that states are almost obliged to do to protect their population from this, Mm. I would say some ways, imaginary fear of terrorists pouring into the country. And so it's, it's after that, it's in the early 2000s, that we see this dramatic increase in the number of walls. So... The, the point that I'm making is that the underlying issue was there before, but that by the 2000s, that stigma of building the wall was removed, and suddenly it was okay to do it. I'm talking with Reese Jones, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and author of several books, including his most recent, Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Move. Let's talk about how walls and barriers have become sites of violence against refugees and migrant populations with some specific examples. But first, I just want to run some stats by you. The refugee crisis that we are witnessing today is the worst since World War II. UNHCR stats are an unprecedented 65.3 million people around the world have been forced from their homes Among them are nearly 21.3 million refugees, half of whom are under the age of 18. There are also 10 million stateless people who have been denied a nationality and access to basic rights such as education, health care, employment, and freedom of movement. Nearly 34,000 people are forcibly displaced every day as a result of conflict, persecution, poverty. These are astronomical figures. This worsening crisis has been getting attention because it landed on Europe's doorstep. But Europe is hosting only 6% of the refugees. And also, we have people who've been internally displaced. More than 10 million people, some 30% of the population of Iraq is displaced, and it's going to get worse. 6.6 million people Syrians are internally displaced. So how do you think we should begin to understand the consequences of this mass migration across borders and within borders of nation states, which has been characterized as a European refugee crisis? The fact that it's called the European migration crisis, refugee crisis, is really problematic. I mean, as you mentioned, only, did you say, 6% of the refugee population are actually in Europe. Just a few weeks ago, Amnesty International published a list of exactly where refugees are located. Out of the top 10 countries hosting refugees today in 2016, exactly zero of them are in Europe. Um, So the top 10, Jordan um, has 2.7 million refugees. Turkey has 2.5 million. Pakistan has 1.6 million. Lebanon, 1.5. Iran, 979,000. Ethiopia, 736,000. Kenya, 533,000. Uganda, 477,000. 
Democratic Republic of Congo, 383,000, and Chad, 369,000. So none of the countries hosting the most refugees are actually in Europe right now. I think it is a crisis that has to do with Europe, but I don't think it's a crisis that's really at Europe's doorstep right now. The point I would like to make is that that the causes of a lot of these issues are Europe's problem. Um, If you think about the history of colonization throughout Africa and um, the Middle East, there were decades and centuries in some places of European states extracting resources from places, disrupting the political system in those places, and then leaving behind um, newly independent countries that didn't necessarily have the economic system in place or the political system in place to succeed in a global economy that's that's emerged. And a second impact of European colonization are the borders that, that Europe left behind. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Africa, the states that exist for the most part are not based on the local cultural or political practices that existed before European colonization. Um, instead, they're for the most part are the borders of the European colonies that were agreed upon in the 1884 Berlin Conference um, and then just kept after that. Um, so it's the imposition of European borders on many of these places that produces a lot of the conflict that we see today because the borders don't match what was historically there mm-hmm. and were imposed from the outside. Many people don't necessarily accept them. You see that for for sure in the Middle East today, um, like the legacies of the Sykes-Picot agreement and a whole series of other European agreements about exactly where the borders should be, which states should be created. And the leaders that were often put in place in these newly decolonized countries had favorable relationships with European states, which continued the dependent relationships. So instead of focusing on the well-being of the people, it was about maintaining those connections. And you see a number of countries serving in that same role today. Morocco is absolutely serving in that position at the moment. The European Union and Spain established um, an immigration agreement with Morocco in 2013 that provided some benefits to Morocco. It simplified student visas for Mm -hmm. Moroccan students to come to the European Union. But in exchange, Um, Morocco agreed to assist the EU in preventing people from being able to pass through Morocco to get to Europe. And Morocco is particularly important for that because your listeners are probably better educated on this than many people. Um, But there are two Spanish cities on the African continent, Malia and Ceuta, um, which both have a population of about 80,000 people that are on Africa, so have a direct land border with Morocco. And so they have in some ways been a beacon for people on the move to try to reach those because then they can set foot into the EU and then be part of this asylum process. How did these two cities end up being part of Spain? So when Spain reconquered the um, Iberian Peninsula from the Moors in the 1400s, they retook cities on the Iberian continent. So like Granada or Sevilla, um, but then they continued across to North Africa and retook several cities in North Africa, including Melilla and Ceuta, in order to have outposts there to continue to control the Moorish armies that were, were there and so to prevent them from being able to cross the Strait of Gibraltar again to attack Spain. So Spain has had these two cities since the late 1400s um, on the North African coast. So Spain, of course, colonized 
northern Morocco in the 1800s. But when then they decolonized it in the 1900s, they claimed that these two cities didn't apply because they had had them for several hundred years. And so they've continued to maintain control of them. So Morocco continues to dispute this and wants to have those cities returned to Morocco. But it's a it's a point of dispute between them. What these cities mean, though, is that there are these two places that are part of the EU where EU asylum laws are in place, where the European Union exists in North Africa. And so in the 1980s and early 1990s, these were places where a lot of people would come that wanted to migrate to Europe would go to these first and then make their way to Europe. Mostly from sub-Saharan. Absolutely. So there's a there's a geography to all of these yeah. movement flows. And so because of the location of Morocco, the majority of people making this route are going to be from Nigeria, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Senegal, Côte d'Ivoire, so that moving up that way, because that's where the, the migration networks are. So they would often go to Mali and then cross the Saharan Desert into Algeria and then make their way over to Morocco. And there's a whole network in place that moves people mm-hmm. through that. So that's actually the first fences that the European Union built were at Malia and Ceuta um, in 1993. So that gives hopefully your listeners a little bit of the the historical scale of this process. It's not something that started mm-hmm. in 2013 mm-hmm. or 14 as it suddenly burst onto the news, but people have been on the move and have been crossing through these spaces for a long period of time. But the, we started this talking about Morocco um, signing this agreement with the European Union. And so at Malia, for example, the European Union and Spain have three fences on the border and uh, People are not officially in the EU until they've crossed all three of those fences. Um, But in 2015, um, with European Union money, Morocco started building a fourth fence. At Malia, the fences are are really quite close to each other, but there's space in between them. And so the idea is to slow people down Mm -hmm. from crossing because the Spanish policy has been that if people only are able to cross the first or the second fence then they have not officially set foot into the EU, and then they're returned back to Morocco. Um, This is something that's still in dispute in European courts and Spanish courts, and it hasn't been finally adjudicated. But the current policy is that if someone crosses only the first or second fence, they can be returned to Morocco. If they cross the third, Spain is obligated to hear their asylum requests. But so to prevent them from even getting to those fences, Morocco has now built a fourth fence that's maybe 20 meters away that's all barbed wire. And Morocco has, has positioned guards about every 100 meters along the border. Even more problematic for people on the move is Morocco also rounded up a lot of migrants. Um, so there was there used to be a very large camp on a mountain mm-hmm. beside Malia where migrants would live there and then prepare to go all try to jump the fence together. They often go in groups of 100 or 200 people so that if 10 or 15 people are able to get over all three and the other 100 and so are caught. But Morocco cleared all of those camps in 2015 and bust all of the people way to the southern end of Morocco to prevent them from actually being close to the edges of the EU. Agence France Presse reported that 100 young men from sub-Saharan Africa managed to get through a border system that you were talking about that is composed of two six-meter high fences with a crisscross of steel cables in between. In order to get across, migrants often use hooks and shoes studded with nails. Yeah. 
to help them get over it. You'll often see, if you look it up online or in the media, images of literally dozens of people sitting up on top of these fences because they've been stopped by the Guardia Civil of Spain, and they're stuck up there waiting to, to find another opportunity. When I was in Morocco doing research, I did quite a bit of research in Morocco for this project. And one You of were the there things, last year? Yes, 2015. And one of the things that I encountered in Morocco, so of course, a lot of people are dying because of these walls and these security procedures. But what I found also very heartbreaking was I encountered a lot of people on the move who were just stuck. For example, I met one family who is from Ghana, and they'd left Ghana in 2012 and had made it to Morocco in 2012. But since then, they've been stuck in Morocco. So they'd tried three times to go by boat to Europe, and the Moroccan Coast Guard had pushed them back. Um, And so they were just living the life of essentially a permanent migrant, stuck on the streets of the Moroccan city of Nador, wandering around, asking for food, asking for money. One thing I did notice in Morocco, at least, that the regular people living in Nador were quite friendly and nice to the people who were on the move. They didn't seem to have any problem Mm. with having this migrant population in their town. And while I was talking to this family, the the little boy who was with them, they had two children. So, I mean, we're talking about a family. We're not talking about Mm. someone who is at all a threat to anyone. But the little four-year-old boy had wandered off and he came back a few minutes later with a large strawberry that a Moroccan fruit vendor had given them. So the people on the move certainly experience kindness by a lot of people who help them along the way and have sympathy for their plight. But the governments often are not as friendly and are often the Moroccan government, particularly because of these agreements that they've signed, is put in a position where they have to do roundups for Mm -hmm. Spain and essentially enforce the border for Spain. Even though there are not very many refugees in Morocco, something like 4,500 uh, refugees are in Morocco? Officially. Officially, um, yeah. of course. Officially, there are 4,500, but two-thirds of them are Syrians. Right. So we definitely, definitely see that. So in 2015, the route that was getting a lot of the attention was the overland, was from, from Turkey to Greece, and then through the Balkans to Hungary, Austria, and then eventually trying to get to Germany to apply for asylum in Germany. And that's, of course, the one that has been heavily shut down. Hungary has built fences. Austria built fences. Macedonia has hardened their border and so that people are stuck in Greece. Greece has built fences on the Turkey border, and now Turkey has built a wall on the Syrian border, right? So that route is, for the most part, closed down. Um, But people are still getting out. People are still getting out, but nowhere near the numbers that were coming before. So you still see people going from Turkey to Greece and arriving in the islands in the Aegean, but in nowhere near the same numbers that we saw in 2015. A second part of that is the EU signed this agreement with Turkey as well, so that Turkey, in exchange for for funds, is doing in some ways a similar thing to what Morocco is doing, is trying to prevent people from using Turkey as a transit space Mm -hmm. to get to the edges of the EU. And so there's no doubt that that is going to send people towards different routes to look for a way to cross into Europe. Libya has also been a transit area for refugees and migrants coming from Africa and the Middle East. At the current moment, my understanding is that there are not that many Syrian refugees going to Libya. Mm-hmm. Instead, the flows that we're seeing from Libya of people getting into boats and trying to make it to Italy um, are primarily people from sub-Saharan Africa, 
Eritrea as well. And a number of them actually had gone to Libya in the past five or six years before the war even there and were working in Libya, right? Because Libya has an oil industry and there were lots of jobs for people to work there. But that as Libya has has collapsed and um, as there's not a central government in the same way, um, they find themselves to be in quite a bit of danger there. And so for them, often they can't get back to where they were from originally. And so their, their only option often is to get into a boat and try to make it to the EU. Is it also because Tunisia, Egypt, they have also tightened their borders? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, that you can see that quite clearly. A number of Syrians do fly to Algeria. Um, mm. So this is another route that I think has maybe slowed down a little bit as the Syrian war has become much more totalizing. Um, but in the early years of the war, another route that people would take was to then these are, of course, middle class, upper middle class people. Syria, of course, had a very well-educated population before this war that would take a flight from Syria to Algeria and then either go into Morocco or go into Libya in order to cross that way. But my understanding is the current groups coming from Libya are predominantly sub-Saharan African rather than, than Syrian. <laughs> That is Reese Jones, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, speaking with Melihe about his new book, Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Movement. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. example you give in your book is Australia, which has one of the most horrendous immigration and refugee policies. Amnesty International just came out with a report that accused Australian government of torturing refugees. For refugees and migrants who try to go to Australia, the trip begins in Jakarta, Indonesia. Iranians and Iraqi citizens don't need a visa to travel to Indonesia. And that leg of a trip is easy. But then they have to pay smugglers to take them to Australia. But immigrants who attempt the trip are often detained at sea before they reach Australia. Can you talk about this journey and where do these people end up? Yeah, it's an, another route that has really been closed down in a lot of ways. Um, my understanding is that not a single boat has reached Australia's mainland in 2015 or 2016. So they are heavily patrolling these waters, um, and it's very difficult to move through that area. Um, so what they do, though, is after they locate these boats, which will be often leaving from Indonesia, trying to reach Christmas Island, which is a small island that Australia controls um, off the 
the coast of Indonesia in the Indian Ocean. Once they're detained, they'll then be taken to a third-party country and put into a detention facility while their asylum requests are heard. And so right now, Australia has two of those camps. One is on... So they are offshoring it. They're offshoring it, right. So one of those camps is at Nauru, which is a small island state that has a population of less than 20,000 people. And it is the hosts this refugee resettlement facility for the Australian government. It's very difficult to know a lot of the details of what's happening at this camp because Nauru is an independent country and they deny visas to journalists. So journalists are not allowed to travel there. But there have been a number of reports that have come out over the summer about the conditions in these facilities. And there have been accusations of child abuse there and really just terrible conditions for the people living in those facilities. Two different people set themselves on fire at this facility facility in 2015 in hopes of raising attention to their plight because the the problem that they face at these facilities is that they're often there for what appears to be an indefinite period of time. So they are a number of people who are there, and it's, it's a very large Iranian population, an Iraqi population, mm-hmm. and there are also a lot of uh, Rohingya refugees who are fleeing uh, Myanmar that are in these facilities. Um, but they can be there for two to three to four years. And even if they are recognized as being a refugee after the adjudication process, Australia is not willing to take them themselves. And so instead, they're looking to sign agreements with other countries to take the refugees. So Australia has an agreement currently with Cambodia to accept people that are have been judged to be refugees. They're giving Cambodia $55 million, and they call it voluntary resettlement. Amnesty International came out with a report, as I said. It interviewed 62 refugees and asylum seekers in Nauru, and more than a dozen current and former contract workers who delivered services on the behalf of the Australian government. The report is called Island of Despair. The evidence that they detailed shows allegations of recurrent self-harm, attempted suicide, children being hit by teachers and threatened with machete by peers, deficient medical care, and persecution akin to that which refugees had fled their homelands from. And this report tells the story of Iranians and Afghans. They have attempted to kill themselves because they think it's, it is better for them to be dead than to live in this camp. Yeah. And the government of Nauru says we're not taking any responsibility because Australia is really responsible for these camps. It is not in our jurisdiction. Yeah, but then I think Australia also deflects in a very similar way to say that the camps are hosted in Nauru and that Nauru is providing the space for this and that it's that it's their responsibility to ensure that the laws of Nauru are followed and that it's not actually Australian territory. So in some ways it creates this limbo where it's nobody's responsibility, which allows for these terrible conditions to be maintained in those camps. The other camp that Aust- Australia has is in Papua New Guinea at Manus Island. But the government of Papua New Guinea has, um, the Supreme Court has ruled that um, they have to close that camp down, that it um, violates the the constitution of Papua New Guinea. So they're in the process of figuring out what to do um, with the people who are at that camp. But the Nauru camp for now seems to be, um, be kept in place. The thing that's most amazing to me about this is that you'll often hear people talk about the Australia solution um, to the, the refugee crisis. And people will 
often people in government positions will talk about it as a successful option because it has prevented these ships from reaching Australia and Australia doesn't have to take on the, the refugees that go into these. And so despite the horrendous conditions in these camps and the, to me, quite clear human rights violations, um, you hear it proposed as a possible solution for Europe to look at. So this is also another kind of wall that they have constructed because the Italians have done the same thing in Lampedusa. Mm -hmm. They basically have moved the border into the sea. Absolutely. So they have they patrol off the coast, mm. right? And so it creates the equivalent of a border wall there because it's it's impenetrable. It prevents people from getting into that space and making it to that mainland. Um, I should give uh, Italy some credit though, because I think Italy, in terms of the various countries in the Mediterranean that are dealing with this issue, um, they've been at the forefront of doing um, a better job of it. Um, they have been after some tragedies in 2013. They have been investing resources in trying to do rescues there. This is um, when a boat with more than 365 people on it capsized. Yeah, I think there were actually 500 people on the boat. 365 people died. Uh, that's right, um, that's and, right. th and they were able to rescue about 100 people. So this, the policy before this tragedy in October of 2013, Italy's policy was that they wouldn't do any rescue of boats until they either received an SOS call or the boat reached shore. And so what was so shocking about this particular boat is that it was only a quarter mile off the coast. So it was literally there. It was right at the edge of Italy um, when this tragedy happened. Um, so in the aftermath of that, Italy did put in place a policy where they would actively go out and look for boats and rescue people who were in those boats um, and bring them back to Italy. But that also proved to be extremely costly for Italy. Um, they were using almost their entire navy for this and it was costing them $10 million a month to do that. So in 2014, late 2014, the EU took over this procedure. Um, and so they have an operation working there. Um, but they're not being as aggressive. The Frontex. Frontex, which is yeah. the European border agency. They're not being as aggressive as Italy was mm. doing it before. And that's because there's a lot of dispute in the European Union about doing search and rescue. Um, so, for example, the United Kingdom opposes any search and rescue in the Mediterranean because they argue that it's a pull factor and that if people on the move know that their boat is going to be rescued, they'll continue to come and to try to go to the EU. And so the UK's position is extremely problematic position that there should be no search and rescue so that more people die and that would prevent other people from trying to come, which is a is a failed idea because people continue to try to come. They're fleeing a situation that is is terrible, right? I mean, if, if they're stepping on a boat and they don't know how to swim and they're going onto a crowded boat, obviously what they're fleeing is worse than this possibility that they're facing in the Mediterranean. So to me, the UK position completely misunderstands the motivations people have for, for being on the move. So restriction of movement, as you detail in your book, the violent consequences of people trying to find safety in Europe and other countries, they have been well documented. So the plight of refugees has been well documented. The response to this crisis, on the other hand, has not been fully investigated. So Europe and other Western countries are trying to keep these refugees and migrants away by paying other countries to warehouse them. Uh, many Eastern European countries are refusing to take in these refugees, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia. 
and the Czech Republic have refused to host refugees. There are some 50,000 refugees stuck in Greece. There are many in the Balkan countries. Sweden and Germany, which were the final and are the final destinations for many of the refugees, are tightening their borders. So what is EU policy? Is it paying their former colonies and poor countries to take in and keep these refugees and eventually deport them back? So what is the formal policy of the European Union to deal with this issue? So part of the issue with the European Union is that border control and asylum policies are not a European-wide issue. Instead, individual member countries continue to retain the right to control their borders and to set their own policies for asylum review and asylum procedures. And so that's why we see a lot of the the problems happening in Europe today is that it doesn't have a unified policy. Um, And so each individual country sets up their own rules, which is causing quite a bit of strife between the different parts of Europe about exactly how they should handle this crisis. One thing I would like to say is that in some ways the focus on refugees is also misleading from my point of view because I believe that all humans have the right to move Mm -hmm. and that when we focus only on refugees, that that's a very narrow category um, that's established by by states, by the state system. And the main purpose that it serves, while it does provide shelter and support for a small group of people who are in need, it also denies the right to move for the majority of people in the world who might want to look for better options elsewhere. So when we've been talking quite a bit about sub-Saharan migrants and many people from sub-Saharan Africa would not qualify Mm -hmm. as a refugee based on the current system. So the current system of refugees is based on the UN Convention on Refugees, which defines a refugee as someone who's crossed a border and also as someone who's fleeing political persecution in their home country. And that can be based on beliefs, on religion, on race or gender. So that means that someone fleeing a famine, for example, is not a refugee. Someone who's fleeing environmental change is not a refugee. Someone who is fleeing the lack of economic opportunities in their home country um, is not a refugee based on the current definitions of it. So to me, um, we need to think about there's short-term things we should be doing to solve this current refugee crisis, um, but there are also much longer questions we should be talking about about who has a legitimate right to move. UC Berkeley political scientist Wendy Brown argues that border walls and militarized security efforts are not a sign of a strength, but the last gasp of a dying political system based on territorially defined nation states. So she basically argues that it is the weakening of a state sovereignty and more precisely the detachment of sovereignty from the nation state. You say that when we see construction of these walls, it is not a sign that the nation state is crumbling, but it's hardening and it's fortifying itself. Yeah. I'm friends with Professor Brown, and we actually have a journal article that we have coming out. Um, no, but it's in, an interesting... 
in a couple of yeah in a couple of weeks um and she has revised her position a little bit on that so i think that she doesn't necessarily completely subscribe to the argument she made in that book at the time yeah definitely from my point of view the the what we see at borders today is not the weakening of the state in any sort of way instead our global system is fundamentally based on states right now if you think about how the united nation operates you have to be a state to be a member of the united nations the way that various international agreements operate their agreements between states and the way that this what this migration issue has done i think has resulted in a number of people in in a lot of countries reverting back to a much stronger nationalist view of who belongs in their place and who doesn't and so i think that's why you see a lot of the quite frankly, racist language that we see today um, in the United States, but also across Europe Europe, um, as well, and also the rise of a series of anti-migrant parties in many of these places. So I think that you could say the same thing for across Europe and the U.S. as well, that, that by bashing this, in some ways, imagined other that's racially different, that's culturally different, that's bringing possibly a different religion, and also is is represented as being some sort of an economic threat, it gets people to kind of roused and ex- excited for the, these nationalist ideas of mm. our people first, right? I mean, you hear Donald Trump saying America first, and you hear, you can see it also in the Brexit decision, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's kind of a reverting back to the idea of the nation state and turning away from things like a broader system like a European Union, or the idea that in some people's mind of globalization kind of starting to to undermine the state. So I think that um, the last 10 to 15 years, the state has been reasserting itself. I would suggest it never really went away um, and that mm-hmm. that claims that it was playing a lesser role, misunderstood the role that the state plays as the fundamental political and economic unit in the world today. But I think you can clearly see today that, that it is having a bit of a resurgence. Um, and so mm-hmm. I would argue quite clearly that the walls are a symbol of this, of the expansion of the state to control another part of its territory and another flow within between different states um, in a way that it wasn't able to in the past. However, you end your book on a positive note. You say, despite the death at borders and the violence of the state, millions more people continue to move. These migrants' decisions are what Simon Springer terms revolution of the everyday. By refusing to abide by a wall, map, property line, border, identity document, or legal regime, mobile people upset the state's schemes of exclusion, control, and violence. They do this simply by moving. Yeah, absolutely. So in in the book, In Violent Borders, a lot of it is saying the bad things that are happening. But I think that the fact that people continue to move and don't abide by these restrictions, it's bringing those restrictions into question. And so if people continue to do that, it opens up more space for people like me and you to discuss what other worlds might look like and what it might mean to have a world where there is freedom of movement um, and where we respect movement as a fundamental human right. And I think the, the fact that so many people are on the move today and many people doing that on foot 
If you think of the Syrian refugees who went out to march in Hungary and just decided we're not going to be stuck here, we're going to march in mass to the German border and we're going to move regardless of what you say, I think it evokes a lot of past marches um, that became powerful symbols as a way to resist poverty. If you think of marches in the U.S. South against the segregation system, but also in India, there's the salt march that Gandhi led where people marched to the sea to gather salt, to protest British occupation in India. That fact that people use movement to resist the imposition on power, I think, is a a very effective way to demonstrate how movement restrictions can be upset. Rhys Jones is Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and author of several books, including his most recent, Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Movement. He spoke with Meli Hirazazan. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Daddy, what else did you leave for me? That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.